Our Father, we cry out to you this morning and ask that your word would come to us in power, in truth, in grace, in mercy, that you would kindle again in our hearts a deep love for you. God, that you would renew our love. We pray as well that you would beat back the powers of darkness as your word is proclaimed, not just here this morning, but throughout the world, in churches, gathering in similar ways around the globe. Lord, may your word beat back the powers of the enemy in hearts and in our societies, in our world. We pray that Jesus would be exalted and that being lifted up above everything else, that men and women and children would come to know him and come to life. Work in this way in us this morning as well, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. As we approach 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 today, in the middle of this ongoing difficult moment as a nation, a moment that got more challenging with the events unfolding in Atlanta this weekend, I want to draw our attention to the great hope and promise of Scripture, which is simply that we can know and enjoy and increase in our experience of the presence of the God of the universe. This is humanity's great need. This is your great need, and this is my great need. This is, in fact, our deepest longing as well, even as we long for and act for for racial justice, for peace, for forgiveness, for prospering, for love. Underneath all of these longings, we are deeply longing for God. Whether we know that or not, we were created by God. We were created for God. Fellowship with God in a garden. The biblical narrative ends with unhindered fellowship with God in the new Jerusalem. And in between, the story of scripture can fairly be summarized as God's gracious and merciful restoration of his holy presence to his world, in spite of our sin and in spite of our rebellion. This restoration of God's presence is at the heart of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. God himself in the person of the Son comes to dwell among the world. And then after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Spirit is sent forth to come and dwell among God's people. The restoration of God's presence is at the heart of the New Testament witness and hope. It's at the heart of our identity as a church, as the people of God, and it's at the heart of our text today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And I would just say that God's presence is desperately needed right now in this moment, in our city, in our nation, and in our world. Some of you might be listening and thinking, Why is he talking about the presence of God? Isn't that just a distraction from what we really need to focus on right now? Racial justice in in specifics and and justice in general. And And I do, of course, affirm that we need to act on those matters. But please understand that from a biblical perspective, there is no great hope for justice apart from the presence, power, healing, forgiveness, and intervention of the creator and redeemer God. Because only God can defeat and dethrone the self-centeredness that fuels injustice everywhere. 
Only God can do that. Only God by his power can do that. We cannot do this by ourselves. So to say that we need God is not to back off the call for justice. It is rather to undergird that call, to give it a proper foundation and a genuine hope. In fact, Peter cites Isaiah 28, 16 in the passage that we're about to study, which is about the new redemptive work of God in the world. But the line immediately following the verse that Peter quotes in verse 17 of Isaiah 28 says, and I will make justice the line. In other words, this new work of God will be defined by justice. To call for God's presence is simultaneously to call for justice. God is a God of justice. The world needs the presence of God right now. And that means, as we will see, that the world needs the church to be the church. Today's passage completes Peter's reflection on a Christian self-understanding that he began back in verse 3 of chapter 1. And that serves as the basis for his instructions on how we as God's people are rightly to live in a pagan society. And we will turn to these instructions next week. But today we get to learn a bit more about who we are as the church. And who we are, of course, as Peter explains, is derived from the identity of our King and our Lord, Jesus. So we will tackle this text in three parts. First, who is Jesus? Second, who are we? And third, what is our vocation? Who is Jesus? Who are we? And what is our vocation? And remember, for a bunch of Christians in Asia Minor, scattered across that territory, which was as large as the state of California, who were suffering dishonor and shame by virtue of their association with this Jesus, what Peter teaches them and us here had to be deeply encouraging to them. For a bunch of Christians living in a society in great turmoil today, these truths can be just as encouraging and inspiring to us, enabling us to more faithfully fulfill the unique and needed role that we have and that we have been given by God. So first, who is Jesus? Verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone. Our Lord, the one whose goodness we have tasted, Peter says in verse 3, is not dead. He is a living stone. When the women went to the tomb, do you remember what the angel asked them? The angels asked them in Luke 24, why do you seek the living among the dead? When John sees Jesus glorified on the island of Patmos, this vision of the glorified Jesus, this is John, remember, in exile, separated from that which was familiar and comfortable, from that which what the world says matters. Jesus says to him, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. In chapter 1, verse 3, Peter tells his readers that they have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now as he wraps up his extended reflection on their identity, he's right back at the resurrection. Admittedly, it's small, the word living, but it's there. Jesus is the living stone, which means that however exhausted we get, however frustrated we get, however overwhelmed we may feel, Let's remember this. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus 
is alive. Hallelujah. This is great news and it's great news that impacts our daily lives. And this Jesus who is the living stone wants to work in our lives and in our world today. Jesus, the living stone, is God's chosen and precious cornerstone. That's the main point of these verses that Peter is making about Jesus. The cornerstone, as those, as the kind of historic building trade could tell far better than I could, is the first stone that gets laid in the foundation in a building project, setting the angle and trajectory for the rest of the work. It was important and critical and foundational and essential. I grew up in a family that enjoyed playing the game Scrabble. My mom's mom, my grandma really enjoyed that game. And all of you who have played Scrabble know how much that first word matters. It affects the entire game and the entire game is built upon and depends upon that word as its foundation. And what a, what a, down, uh, a downer it is when somebody plays a, a short four letter word instead of something exciting like six or seven letters. That's a bit like the cornerstone. It's first, essential, foundational, and every other piece of the building is connected to and dependent upon it. By affirming that Jesus is the cornerstone, Peter is saying that Jesus is central and foundational and the central and foundational piece of God's new redemptive work, chosen and precious Jesus is to God. And to make this point, he quotes, as I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 28, 16 and verse six, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. As this cornerstone of God's new work, one's relation to this Jesus, to this cornerstone, is deeply important and significant. It affects one's future destiny, either of honor or of stumbling. Peter teaches very clearly in this section that our response to the cornerstone is definitive for our lives. Either we will be grafted into the new building of God in which Jesus is that cornerstone, or we will stumble on the cornerstone. So verse 8, as Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. The difference between honor or stumbling is the issue of belief or trust, of faith. That is the key issue. Rejection in verse 4, Peter says this, this stone was rejected by men, is clarified in verse 7 as not believing or in verse 8, as not obeying the message or the word. It is not yielding, not surrendering. It's saying, I don't repent and believe in the God who hung on the cross for me. I don't choose to follow the one who gave himself up for me. The alternative response is repentance and faith. It's trusting and obeying. It's yielding autonomy and control, trusting in Jesus the king and handing our lives over to him. For those who do this, Peter says, even if they're present and the readers that he's, uh, that are reading this letter for the first time, they, they are, their present is marked by humiliation, by ridicule and by rejection. Even you in those moments can be encouraged by the fact that Jesus experienced something similar. He too was rejected. And by knowing that this is not going to last, Jesus now reigns in glory. Even though your present is like Jesus' past, your future will be like Jesus' present, the living stone. And you will not be put to shame, verse 6. And you will receive honor, verse 7, which is best read. So the honor is for you who believe. 
rather than the honor or the preciousness being applied to the stone. It's really applied to those who trust in the stone in verse 7. The challenging final line of verse 8 about those who stumble, which is also what they were destined for, subsumes even the free and fully responsible rejection of Christ under the sovereign hand of God, granted in mysterious ways, but very consistent with other places in the New Testament as well. I want to just pause here for a moment and say and ask us, where are we in relation to God's chosen and precious cornerstone, Jesus? Have we yielded? Have we handed over the reign and rule of our lives to this one who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is the risen one, the living stone? Have we yielded and surrendered to his loving grace and mercy, his desire to bring forgiveness and blessing and life and truth into our lives? Or do we remain resistant, rejecting Jesus and retaining rule for ourselves? We need to wrestle with that question in light of this text. Jesus is God's chosen and precious cornerstone, the living stone. Our second question now is, who are we? The ones who trust in Jesus. So verse 5, you also like or as living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That word used there for house can indicate either a, a a dynasty like a powerful family or a dwelling place for a deity. And both are appropriate here in a sense in that followers of Jesus are being grafted into a family of shared unity, purpose, and identity with God as our Father. But with the language of stones and cornerstones and foundations running around in this text, it seems clear that Peter wants us to understand this spiritual house as a new temple, a new dwelling place for God. Only this is not a physical structure like the building here at the corner of Tremont and Park Streets. It is a mistake to think of the church as a building, and this pandemic is helping us to understand that even more. This is a spiritual house, Peter says, made up of people who are linked together in unity of identity and purpose, as living stones in relation to God's chosen cornerstone, the true living stone. We are being built together, Peter says, into a spiritual house, a new temple, the place of God's dwelling. God's dwelling was symbolized in the Old Covenant by the temple and the tabernacle prior to the temple. This is where the glory and presence of the God of heaven dwelt on earth. In the Holy of Holies, in the heart of the temple, heaven and earth meet. But the Old Testament temple represented the entire cosmos. It was designed through its furnishings, ornaments, dimensions, priestly garments, and so on to be a microcosm, a little cosmos, And God's dwelling in the temple was to signify and point to God's future dwelling in the whole world. Israel never thought that God could be contained in the temple. But this was a symbol that God's dwelling would one day and glory would one day go across the earth. In the words of New Testament scholar Greg Beale, the temple was a small scale model and symbolic reminder to Israel that God's glorious presence would eventually fill the whole cosmos And that the cosmos, not merely a small architectural structure, would be the container for God's glory. So the prophet Habakkuk can write, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Isaiah the prophet said something very similar as well. 
the temple was a signpost to that future. And the breaking out of that architectural structure, the greater coverage of the glory of God, begins in a new way with Jesus himself. Jesus' body was the place where the presence of the Holy Lord of glory now dwelt on earth. So Colossians 2 verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's why after cleansing the temple, Jesus can say in John 2 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John tells us, the, right, the, the gospel writer John tells us in verse 21 that Jesus was speaking of his body. His body is the new temple, the new dwelling place of God on earth, such that the old temple is rendered obsolete. And that was Jesus' message. And the glory and presence of God are breaking out and beginning to fill the world now through him, signified by the tearing of the temple, the curtain in the temple at the, at the moment of Jesus' death, as we read about in Matthew 27. But now... Further, Peter says, you, the church, as living stones, are that new temple, that spiritual house built on the cornerstone of Jesus. You are the dwelling place of God and for God. And the expansion and presence of the glory of God in the world is now happening through you, the body of Christ. That is astonishing and overwhelming. And in verses 9 and 10, Peter piles on the truths about the church, about these people, about you and me, that enables his readers and us to relish in the wonder of our position. It's a fitting end to a long and extended reflection on Christian self-understanding. He takes up the language that was applied to Israel, specifically in Exodus 19 and in Isaiah 43 and Hosea 2, and applies that language directly to the church. Remember, those to whom Peter is writing are suffering. They're exiles in a foreign land. They're being mistreated and maligned. Imagine the encouragement that comes to them when he applies directly to them these truths that were applied to Israel. You are a holy nation, he says in verse 9. In verse 10, quoting Hosea 2, you were once not a people, but are now a people. You had once not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I find it interesting that this extended reflection by Peter begins with the mercy of God. Chapter 1, verse 3, according to his great mercy. And now ends with the mercy of God here in chapter chapter 2, verse 10. You have received mercy. Sheer gift, sheer undeserved blessing, sheer favor. This is the basic experience of the Christian. Basic to our self-understanding. We have received mercy. And back in verse 9, you are a chosen people a people belonging to God, or really a people for his own possession. And that speaks into our present moment quite powerfully. The church is a new people. And our union into this global spiritual house is rooted in our shared participation and incorporation into Christ himself. And this makes us new creatures and one people, one race. That has the power to undercut all racism, of course. It does not mean, as I said last week, that the church should be colorblind. Our oneness in Christ can be wielded as a weapon to suppress the minorities in any given place or culture. And that suppression is not part of the gospel. Our diverse ethnicities are not to be glossed over, but should instead be embraced and celebrated as they become part of the mosaic that the church is called to be 
In other words, being grafted into this new people by faith in Christ does not erase all that marks one's prior identity before coming to Christ, but rather redeems it and allows us to bring our full selves, including our unique ethnicity, into the church and to share in the beauty of all people united under Jesus. You are a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. Of course, the history of the church has tragically told a different story as it has been infiltrated by sin and including including the sin of racism. But the resources are here and what Peter declares to us now in the gospel to undercut all racism and racial injustice. Jesus is God's precious and chosen cornerstone. We are a spiritual house that spans the globe. So I want to ask thirdly, what is our vocation? Going back to verse 5, Peter tells us that as this people, as this spiritual house, we are a holy priesthood. And then in verse 9, he refers to us, quoting Exodus 19, as a royal priesthood. And there are two tasks laid into these two verses. One in verse 5 is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the other in verse 9 is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. With this phrase, royal priesthood, we are tapping into the original human vocation that included a royal and priestly dimension. In the creation account in Genesis 1, human beings were commanded to rule, to have dominion. That dominion is affirmed in Psalm 8, a passage that is regularly applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And this rule is meant to be an extension of God's benevolent reign over his world. We are, that is, to draw out the latent potential of the created order, to cultivate it and to develop culture. That is our vocation as human beings, participating in the benevolent reign of God. I like to think of the work of someone like Frederick Law Olmsted with Central Park in New York City or the Emerald Necklace string of parks here in Boston, cultivating creation, making something ordered and beautiful, bringing out the potential that was latent within these things for the blessing and enjoyment of all. This is the work of those who have been made in the image of God, called to exercise his benevolent rule. And this work also has a priestly dimension. We are to be the point in creation that sums up the praise and worship of creation back to its creator. That is the priestly role to mediate the word of God to the world and to mediate proper worship from the world back to God. We lost this vocation because of sin in Genesis 3, but after God redeems his people, and in particular after he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, just as he's about to give them his word on Mount Sinai through Moses, this dual vocation is given back to the people of God in Exodus 19 verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You, Israel, are to have this royal and priestly vocation to take up what was lost in sin. And this royal and priestly vocation is, of course, fulfilled in the Messiah in Jesus himself. And then Jesus calls us with him to participate in that vocation as members of his body, as living stones being built into a spiritual house. So Peter can quote Exodus 19.6 in verse 9. And tap into this dual royal and priestly vocation for us as the people of God today. 
In the words of N.T. Wright from his book, After You Believe, quote, the royal and priestly vocation of all human beings, it seems, consists in this, to stand at the interface between God and his creation, bringing God's wise and generous order to the world and giving articulate voice to, to creation's glad and grateful praise to its maker, worship and stewardship, generating justice and beauty. These are the primary vocations of God's people, end quote. And this vocation appears quite explicitly in the final book of the scriptures in Revelation 5.10, talking about the redemptive work of Jesus when it says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. We, brothers and sisters, in Christ, we are a royal priesthood and our whole lives yielded to Christ are our spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, verse 4. So let's not hold anything back as we fulfill this vocation. Remember how radical this is to those on the margins in Asia Minor, to those maligned and mistreated, to those seen as a threat to the civic order because they wouldn't participate in the religious practices of the day. You are a spiritual house and a royal and holy priesthood, Peter says. And what he'll go on to say, as we'll begin to look at in future weeks, and this will surprise us a bit, is that our witness into this world is going to lead to suffering and sacrifice to using whatever privilege we have for the blessing of others. In short, our fulfillment of our vocation as a royal priesthood will look just like the great high priest and king himself, Jesus, as Peter will go on to say explicitly at the end of chapter 2. But as we follow him down this path, as we offer up these sacrifices our full lives, as we bring into the world the praises of God, our worship, our creator, and our redeemer. We will more and more mediate to the world the presence of God because we are the temple of God. And this is what our world needs. So people of God, let us relish our identity as living stones. Let us marvel at the fact that by the sheer grace of God, we are a holy nation a chosen people, a people belonging to God, a people who have received mercy. Let's become more and more who we are by the power of the Spirit, by a life of feeding on and yielding to the Word of God, by a life of prayer, by a life of praise and worship, all of which will generate justice and generosity and beauty in the world. Let's be a royal priesthood and so mediate the deeply needed presence of God to the world that is in turmoil around us. There is nothing our world needs more than Jesus, than God himself, and for the church to be the church. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that for all those who have been built into this spiritual house in Boston and around the globe that you might enable us to mediate your presence into this world that so desperately needs it, longs for it, thirsts for you. Lord, may we be your agents. As a royal priesthood, may we declare your praises. May we 
offer up our lives as sacrifices, Lord, and may you through us be brought into the world. May your glory ever increase and ever expand as we fulfill this vocation to which you have called us as your people. Lord, I pray that you pour out your spirit upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.